Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How you doing? You okay? No, seriously, I'm asking you, all right? That's good. This is the Two Shot Podcast. I'm Craig Parkinson, and this week, me and producer Griff... Where did we go? We only went to North London. We've got to get back up north. There's too many of these podcasts down in London. No, I'm joking. I love London. It's fantastic. I used to live there anyway. But we went to North London to have a sit-down chat with somebody. Now... This is a bit of a sensitive one this week because I... How do I phrase this? I am not able to tell you his full name, right? It's for personal and professional reasons, but what I can say is that his name is Danny. It's a a positive podcast episode. It's, It's full of happiness Personally, I found it quite emotional. Um, It'd be very interesting to see what you think when you hear it. Um, The one thing I will say is there may be some people who are listening to this episode and they recognise the name, the full name of, of this week's guest. And what I would really, really love to say is please don't throw out there on social media... Um, who um, reveal, basically, don't reveal the full name of the guest. Um, It could hurt other people. It could hurt him personally and professionally. So I'd really appreciate that. Um, But yeah, I suppose we should just uh, get on and play it. Here we go. This is the Two Shot Podcast with Danny. And that's how they start. I don't know who made uh, the decision that podcasts go, oh, right, I'm going to start. <laughs> oh, so, as you can hear in the background, uh, myself and producer Griff uh, have come to North London today. And in the background, you can hear uh, this week's guests, eight-month-old little boy who has, unfortunately for us, woken up slap-bang at the beginning of this podcast. Um, He might go back. (laughs) Right. He might not. He might. Anyway, look, what I'll do, we'll try and speak very quietly, so pop your earphones in and away we go. Hello. Danny, how are you, mate? You well? I'm all right. I might have to go and do something about that in a minute. Why don't we just take a little advert break for our sponsors... Which we don't have, and Danny can go and see how this little boy is. Pause. Completely sounds law, isn't it? If nailed ones do two and a half hours, this time of the day, if in my head, if it all goes to the maybe maybe we can. Let's maybe see how he gets back. He'll get up, and they well, can do whatever. Let's see how we go for now. Oh. 
but you know we've started anyway because that's our podcaster do you listen to a lot of podcasts Dan? I don't because I've got so much music so much music and two young children doesn't really help and not a lot of time yeah um, do you come from a big family Dan? I'm the oldest of three and what are their professions now? Um, my brother's not working um, and my sister is training to do something similar to me. The foundations are Freudian psychoanalysis um, and then lots of other various thinkers throughout the, the last hundred or so years. So I think psychoanalysis has been around about 125 years, 120 years. Um, and how long do you have to train for that? I, I certainly study. Well, there are different ways of doing it, and I've done it, as usually, the most difficult way you could possibly do it, <laughs> <laughs> which is how I do everything. Um, so I am training at a place which is... It's almost like doing an apprenticeship. Right. So I've already got a master's degree in psychoanalysis, <clears throat> which I did while I was still acting. Um... And then I decided I wanted to train as a psychotherapist. And so the, like the learning element is four years. Um, so I've done that. But then you have to see people for a certain amount of time before they will allow you to legitimately say you're a psychotherapist. It's a very grey area. So there will be, you know, some people will say, oh, I'm a psychotherapist but they won't have done it as much work as I have. And when you say there's a certain amount of time, is that a stipulation that you have to do, like, 30 hours or something like that? Or? Yeah, it's considerably yeah. more than that, yeah. Is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. How, how long is it, do you want me asking? Well, it's into the hundreds of hours. So that's where we are now, today. Yes. So what I want to do is go right back to yes. the beginning. When you were... Where, where did you go to school? Because you, you're... I'm North, I'm North London, yeah. North London, born and bred. So I was a Barnet, Barnet boy. I was born in Hammersmith. And my pet was born on Friday the 13th. <laughs> and literally, my mum went into labour the day they were moving house from Hammersmith to Barnet, which is, in, in London terms, fair old trick. Yeah. And uh, so my grandparents had to do the move because my mum was rushed to Queen Charlotte's Hospital. In, in Hammersmith to have me. God. Same hospital as uh, John Lennon's kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why I know that. And then when you were growing up and when you were at school, what, what, because I, I, I know you and I've known you for uh, many a year, I know that music's a massive passion for you, but what, what, was, what were you passionate about when you were a kid? I think, do you know, music was my earliest memory is, is being passionate about music. So I remember, it's interesting because it's the, God, it's the 50th anniversary, isn't it, this year? So the first record I remember listening to over and over and over again on my dad's big old 70s headphones um, was Sgt Pepper's album. And, I mean, I knew it all inside out. And does that stem from you, Dad? Or your mum, the music? They were my mum's. My dad, my dad's a jazz man. Right. A lot of hardcore jazz man. Um, 
So I had that influence as well. I've still got a lot of his old records. I've still got that copy of Sergeant Pepper's. Back in the days when you used to take them to parties, you know, you, you, that's, you know, not like us with our MP3s. Yeah. So you used to take your new records to the party. So I've still got in my mum's handwriting the little stickers on the front. Oh, yeah. With our surname on them so that nobody else could pinch them. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I remember... What I remember most about that record was, you know, a day in the life, yeah. the big orchestral. I couldn't listen to it all because when I was five, the orchestral bit was too much for me. Emotionally? On, on my headphones, yeah. yeah. It used to scare the hell out of me. Oh, it used to scare It used yeah. to terrify me. And I couldn't listen to it for years. Years and years and years. Wow. Um, it used to, I don't know why, it had a, it had a really <clears throat> intense emotional effect on me. It's just music though, isn't it? I mean, it could happen to all sorts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But for years, I don't think I could listen to it till I was, you know, 12 or 13. I burst into tears watching an animated film with my son mm. the, the weekend because there was a pig singing. Mm. And it, I just burst into tears. Well, singing pigs. Singing, it? singing, you don't see him singing pigs in a leotard. As a Jewish boy. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, when did the the acting come sort of knocking on your doorstep? What age were you? Well, I the first time I had ever acted was in twenty four seven. So, for those people who don't know, that was Shane Manners' debut feature film, wasn't it? It was his first kind of. Serious debut feature yeah. film. I used the word serious advisedly. I don't mean that the previous one wasn't serious. No, but, I but mean, it was the first one. Saying he'd done shorts, little shorts and stuff. Well, and he'd done Small Time, which yeah. was, you know, made for a fiver using high eight cameras then. So, how did you end up being in that position? Well, this, I mean, this is, I mean, it's just bizarre, really. Um, I was. I had a, I had a breakdown in my late teens, and but still managed to get myself to college in Nottingham, and I moved into a really rough bit of Nottingham, and I was living with people I didn't know, and I'd got there a week earlier and moved in, and there was going to you know it was pre-mobiles, there was no telephone there, there was nothing, yeah, and I was not in a good way, and I went into <clears throat> the city centre <clears throat> and there was this bizarre piece of art in the slab square we used to call it in Nottingham it was just a big black box and people kept popping up out of this box and there was this quite funky young guy there with a kid in a pushchair and he just started talking to me and I was so nervous um, I thought he had an angle I thought he was up to something you know and he invited me to come and have a coffee with him and I thought, I literally, I thought, this is all wrong, this guy's, you know, this guy's bad news. Um, but you went along anyway. But I went along. Yeah. And we had a coffee and he was a really nice bloke and we, we became friends. And he lived on the same road as Shane and was in small time and then later was in 24-7. And they were making these short films together. And then a year, maybe more later... Shane was living in a house very near me and we used to, you know, I used to pop around, have a bit of food and, you know, and 
I popped round one day and he, I was chatting to him about a record I'd just bought and he said, I'm just about to make another film, would you like to do an audition? And the next time I popped round to see a mate of mine, no one was there except Shane and he took me upstairs and we did this audition and I didn't think anything of it really. And then three months later a script turned up right. on, my, on my doorstep. And then by the time we got to rehearsals, Shane had made the part considerably bigger. Right. And hadn't told me because he knew that I'd get scared and probably back out, yeah. which, which he probably was right. So, um, no, sorry for jumping around a lot. For someone who was born where they were, how, what, how did you end up in Nottingham? Um, well, again, interesting. I, as I said, I was in a bit of a state. And Can we, do you mind if we discuss about your breakdown or is that not something you want to talk about i don't want to go into it too much it's funny i mean i was saying to you before we started this that you know as a psychoanalyst i kind of question a lot about myself yeah and and about my patients and um i was wondering about this being in the public domain and whether i would be comfortable with my patients hearing it um which is still a question you you don't have to. I don't want to bring up anything that would make you feel uncomfortable. No, so not, I want to. Yeah. I, the the one of the things that is a through line of these podcasts, because even though every one of them different, is there. I want them to be very relaxed, mm. but I, again, I want them to be as open as possible. I'm not. I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to find anything out or expose anything. So you just you can steer anything away what you want to mate it's absolutely fine but let's talk about how you did end up in nottingham we don't have to well i mean so yeah so i sort of my mental statement i i didn't despite being very very good at school um everything basically went downhill after my dad left and i'm the oldest of three and i was only 12 when he left right and i didn't really deal well with even though there was no pressure put on me the pressure I think I put on myself to to look after my family, which you can't really do when you're 12, you know? Yeah, what can you do when you're no, 12? exactly. Especially trying to deal with any sort of guilt or shame or anything exactly. that you may feel. Exactly. Um, and I think ultimately it was sort of too much. I think I was always a complicated kid, but it meant that I didn't get A-levels. I didn't, you know, I didn't do very well. Um, but I found this course in Nottingham that what was it called it was called community performance and right. it, it was an hnd that's a higher national diploma um don't know if they exist anymore and it was full as i realized when i got there of people that didn't get into drama school <laughs> but right. i was there because it had this youth work element and i'd always worked with kids and um, and was interested in continuing that, but also I always loved film, you know. So it was it was like something that I could be interested in, and you know maybe mix drama and and working with kids. Where did you used to work with kids prior to this? Um, youth camps and right. stuff. Yeah, youth camps. Um, believe it or not, I, t- I used to teach Hebrew as well when I was thirteen. Did you? Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- so these youth camps, I was always involved in those from an early age. And when you were working in the youth camps, did you, um, were you doing anything to do with drama then? Or was, no, was drama no, was no. completely yeah, no, the was other completely, end of the spectrum for you? Yeah, completely. 
I mean, no, I didn't even, to the degree that I was kicked out of drama in the third year of secondary school, I wasn't allowed to do drama. Bad attitude. I just, I just saw it as an excuse to muck about. Yeah. Yeah. Which I now realise, of course, is the very essence of drama. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, that's why they call them plays, isn't it? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, But, of course... You know, I, I, I joke because, you know, within that there's a great deal of discipline, um, which I didn't have. Um, so, no, I hadn't. And then, of course, everybody on that... So so I went up to meet the head of this course. In How Lottie. old were you at this point when you went up to Nottingham? I'd have been 18. But you didn't know anybody up there, did you? No. 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 Um, and I came out of the station and I just immediately liked it. And then I saw... A lot, there's a lot of skateboarders in Nottingham. And I was a skateboarder at right. the time. And I just felt as comfortable as I, as I could do at the time. So there was a bit of a community there for you already? Yeah, it yeah. just looked, I just felt like there was, so it looked like somewhere maybe I could be comfortable. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I was offered a place and I went. And then I got 24-7. How long was the course? Sorry. To two years. It was two years. And I think I did 24-7. So 24-7, I think, must have filmed. Again, it's weird. Another anniversary after talking about Sergeant Peppers. But this year is 20 years since the release of 24-7. How did you feel having, you know, drama or acting never really been on your radar than to jump into this feature film? Did, did, did you sort of jump into it and hope to be caught or were you wary or what were you feeling? Did you, I mean, what I suppose what I'm asking is, did you question it? It's, I mean, it's 20 years ago. It's half my life ago. So it's hard to remember exactly. I remember being, I remember throwing up before the first day's rehearsals and... We rehearsed at the Broadway cinema in Nottingham, lovely independent cinema. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I remember meeting Shane halfway up the stairs to where we were rehearsing and he introduced me to Bob Hoskins. And that something happened at that point where I just, I thought, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> and then, and this is absolutely true, uh, Ben Rothwell, wherever you are, um... I walked into where we were rehearsing, obviously looking very green and uh, very nervous. And I went to make myself a cup of tea. And the third, I didn't even know the jargon then, the third assistant director, um, he might have been the second, probably the second, uh, came up to me and told me that he wanted two coffees, one white, one with sugar. <laughs> and I, I was, of course, I was like, all right, yeah. of course, yeah, okay. And then sort of ran back five minutes later and was like, I'm really sorry. I was like, why? <laughs> what are you sorry about? Well, you're, I was like, yeah, Danny, nice to meet you. And, you know, I didn't even, I didn't realise the faux pas, you know, I didn't. No, it was a faux pas. Some yeah. bloke asked me to make a coffee. I was making one anyway. Yeah. Um, so it was all, I mean, it's pretty bizarre, but we did a week's rehearsals, all of us. How did you find that week's rehearsals? Because 
you're being thrust into this film mm. world. So this this week's rehearsal, this is the start of your training, really, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, weirdly, looking back, it wasn't, you know, there was stuff on the course that wasn't, you know, that was there was this dramatic element on the course. And one thing that I remember was having to write a monologue. And I wrote a monologue about uh, an ex-soldier and who is... And this monologue is about having killed somebody. And, you know, the whole thing is set up for you to think that obviously he's killed somebody in war or in, in action somewhere. But actually it turns out that he's come back from a tour and hasn't coped well with being back and has hit the bottom and killed a kid when he was drunk behind the wheel. Right. And that only comes out at the end of the monologue, you know. And so, you know, my brain kind of worked... And you were supported into being creative. Exactly. Yeah. And Shane's very, very good at that. I mean, Shane was, <clears throat> Shane was only 24. Well, we did. 24. <laughs> you think about that now. 24-year-old in charge of what was a very experienced film unit. Yeah. <clears throat> Gus Caesar, who was the first AD, this wonderful Scottish guy. I wish I could do the accent. He was a very, very funny man. And we were pretty hard to handle. Not so much me, but the other lads, you know, a bunch of young lads getting paid decent money, you know. To play. To play. Yeah. Um, and Gus was art director on Gregory's Girl. So really? the 1984 so Scottish yeah, film. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like there were all these amazing people about, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I look back on it incredibly fondly. Did you... Did you did you get over the nerves once you started filming? Did you did you find the fun? Again, very very weirdly, I I'm not sure I ever found the fun because I was in a pretty dark place at the time. I, I did enjoy it. Um, also, my character in it, which was no accident, and I'm sure Shane took advantage of of how I was at the time. My character was, you know, being abused by his dad and watching his mum being abused. And that's kind of his story arc, was that this boxing club kind of gives him the confidence to get them out of that situation and yeah. to stand up to this abusive father. And this, again, the support on screen. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, um, you know, I had this wonderful actress, Annette Badland, playing my mum, who's, you know, old school, yeah. really. And was absolutely lovely to me. Um, and I was involved in that process as well. I mean, I remember auditioning women to play my mum with the casting director, Abby Cohen, not far from here in Kentish Town. You know, and I was like, watching, I don't know anything about this. So this is even before I'd really done anything. Yeah. But they just wanted to see who I'd work with. God, so you're really into it now. And so did you find yourself learning even though you were so green i mean obviously you did i was very lucky that somehow and this is all very actory stuff um which i'm surprised is still all there <laughs> but um i always knew where the camera was instinctively and knew not to do too much now I also think that I was very nervous and 
not doing much and being nervous and a bit wet behind the ears. Probably read quite well yeah. on camera. And Bob was very, very supportive. Um, Bob was was a, was a, was really lovely to me. And it's funny this. I, I, I've often wondered, and because I, I can't remember whether this came from Shane or from a conversation that Bob and I had. There's a suggestion never commented on in the film, but there for my character, that Bob was my father. Right. That's and interesting. So there's a scene at the end where he dies, you know, not quite in my arms, but in my presence. Yeah. And that's what we discussed before we did that scene. And I remember him saying to me, all you have to do is have the thoughts. Just have the thoughts and the camera will do the work. And it's a good note for the young actors out there. <laughs> it is. That's fantastic. It really was, you know, it really was your first bit of training on this film. And once you'd finished that film, did you think, oh, well, that's, that was just a little section of my life and I've just done a film. Did you think it was going to stop there or did you think, I, I want to pursue this now? Well, no. I've I got mean, a bit of a taste for it. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought, well, whatever happens... Whatever I do, I was really serious about getting the HND. Yeah, and I'd been given time off to do it. And what did sorry? What did you want to achieve having what, once you got the HND? What, 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 where was the path going there? I, I didn't have you a didn't path. Know. I didn't have a path. I'm not sure I've. So there was no goal at the end, really. For no, that. no, not at all. Which maybe made it easier for me to go and pursue acting, really. But I suppose sometimes, even at those times in your life where you don't really know what the end result's going to be, you've got to go through it to find out what it is anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, We've all been there. Sorry if I seem distracted. I'm just watching my baby monitor here. Every now and again, (laughs) it it flashes up and then goes, calms down again. So even I've turned it down, I can... That's why we're we're speaking in very hushed tones. I don't think it makes any difference how we talk. It's just I realised we were, though, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Psychologically. Both being dads, we're just sort of... Both being dads, yeah. Um, so, So, sorry, did you, after that... Did you have a taste for it? Did you think this acting is something I'm, I want to pursue? I wanted to learn more about it, or yes and no. I mean, you know, without <laughs> being too uh, what's the word I'm looking for cutthroat. Um, I think I was probably living on about thirty quid a week at the time. <laughs> Um, my rent for my flat in Nottingham was for my room was thirty quid a week. Right, and it was very easy to live twenty years ago in Nottingham <laughs> on thirty quid a week. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, I think a triple shot at the local was a pound fifty. You know, um, and I was paid equity minimum for a film then, which was probably about fifteen hundred a week. So it was more money a week than I'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, so there was obviously that. I thought, well, God, if somebody's going to pay me to to do this, you know, not to mention that, you know, your car turns up in the morning and picks you up and then you turn up on set and somebody makes you a cup of coffee and a bacon sardine. (laughs) 
could be worse, yeah. you know. Um, but I went back and finished the HND, and then the film came out, and and you know, it, it was it was so weird because nobody went to see that film. I saw it at the cinema. You went to see it. <laughs> and how many other people were there? Uh, there was nobody else in the cinema when I saw it. It was at the Coronet Cinema in Turnpike Lane in London, which is no longer there, which was one of the last cinemas I remember that um, for some reason, if you were on the last two rows, you were able to smoke. Not anywhere else, but the last two rows. I love that. Yeah. It's like the last two rows of the bus. Do you remember it kind of sums up turbine load. <laughs> it really does. No wonder it's not there anymore. So look, between you finishing the film, going back to DHND and the film coming out, you didn't actively pursue anything with the acting. Actively pursue anything with the acting. That's not good, grammar, <laughs> is it, really, for a podcast? It's terrible. So you weren't actively pursuing... Well, until the film came out, I nobody knew anything about me. Right. It would have been like me turning up on an agent's doorstep and saying, I've just done this film, honest. <laughs> and I, I, was, I think I was all right in it. Well, <laughs> you know, I suppose, I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, did you have the hunger for it? I, I didn't really. I didn't really. And, and having not been an actor now for incredibly eight or nine years... Um, the one thing I realised, particularly being friendly with guys like yourself and other guys who you went to drama school with, who I'm still friendly with, um, the one thing that all of you share is a knowledge that has been with you from probably when I was sitting listening to Sergeant Peppers over and over and over again, that you didn't want to be actors, that you were going to be actors, and that is what you do. Right, I get you. And I never had that. I never had that when I was acting. And that was a great comfort to me when I finally decided to walk away from it. It was very hard walking away from it. So... But you didn't just stop. You didn't just walk away after that one film. No, no, did I you? didn't. No, no, no. I banged my head against the brick wall for about ten years. Yeah, <laughs> but you did do a succession of a film, of yeah. films and, and well-respected and award-winning films. Yes, I did. And you were, worked with great people, and I know that you learned a lot from them. I did work from some wonderful people, um, Alison Stedman and Dave Threlfall, who you know not necessarily not necessarily you know massive named actors you know um but fascinating people and very lovely people i worked with an actress very sadly no longer with us called charlotte coleman who was a wonderful actress and and we got on very very well yeah i mean it was you know don't get me wrong you know it was great fun i had i had some really good times and 24 7 i think was instrumental in in my recovery at the time Right. Because there was something, and that was the most important thing, really. After I did it, I thought, well, hang on a minute. If I can do that, you know, having never acted in my life, then, you know, I can do whatever I want. I can, I can, I can survive. If yeah. I can survive that, 
then I can, you know, it sort of just gave me a bit of fight back, really, ironically. Yeah. Being a film about boxers. When you, when you were an actor, what did you find that was the, mo- the that was probably the most frustrating for you? Well, you know the answer to this, <laughs> as all actors do. Um, and I, I think I'll preface this with what you also said, which, you know, I was very lucky. So I made 24-7, and I never get them the right way around. Then I made, I think then I made Beautiful People, which won at Cannes. Yeah. Um, and then I made a film called One More Kiss, and, you know, this is three feature films back-to-back. Um, and then, you know, I met a wonderful director called Adrian Shergold and he gave me a guest lead on Touch of Frost, which was massive at the time. And I thought, you know, this is this is easy. You know, I'm getting to do good quality work, meet amazing people. Get paid, Learn from great people. Get, get paid decent money. Um, but, of course, it's not right now. Um, and... Then when you're not flavour of the month anymore, it gets really hard. Yeah. And you don't know where your next job's coming from. And then, you know, the little voices in the back of your head start to wonder if you've done something wrong. Yeah. And why don't they like me anymore? (laughs) And it all sounds terribly whiny and pathetic, but actually... It Let doesn't. It really doesn't, because I understand where you're coming from, and I'm sure people will be listening will understand where you're coming from, and if they don't, then I'm sure they will do soon enough. Then they're not actors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's the insecurity. But also not just the insecurity, it's the lack of autonomy. So, you know, then you do get a job, or you get a script, and it's crap. And then you get another crap one. And then, you know, there comes a point where you're thinking, actually, this is not what I want to do. And from from starting out, it was all, it came relatively easy and the jobs were flowing. It did get progressively harder. Yes. And that's why I talked about what, you know, you and Mark Stobart, a mutual friend of ours, you know, you know that you're actors. And I think that, I don't know, I'm guessing that on some level that must keep you going during those points. I don't know, I mean, it's a hard one because I was, on a previous episode, I was talking to Kate Ashfield, who I know that you know a bit, and we both agreed that it gets harder. It does get harder and it does get more frustrating, even if you've, mm. you've, you feel you've got a great body of work. Mm, maybe it gets more frustrating. Yeah. So how long... Did you say to yourself, right, I'm going to give myself an X amount of time and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to choose plan B. I'm going to do something else now. <laughs> I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> um, I did... I never got my degree... Because weirdly, I transferred to the second year of a degree after my HND. Right. That's when 24-7 had sort of come out. I decided to carry on with a degree because I didn't know how the acting was going to go. And what was the degree in, sorry? Contemporary art. Right. <clears throat> and then I got offered Beautiful People. 
and it was a low-budget film. And weirdly, they were going to pay me exactly the same as it would cost me to buy myself out of my fees for university. Right. So it would mean leaving university, not finishing the second year of my degree, to do a film that I wouldn't get paid for because I had to pay the money back. So I had a word with them, and they agreed that if I could finish all the work I needed to do, they would let me go and do this film. So I went and did this film, and um, that's how I sort of embarked on becoming an actor, and then I moved back to London. But then what the, the, the nail in the coffin for me was I'd been out of work at one point for ten months. I had... She shall remain nameless, but you and I... She holds a special place in both our hearts. Um, my agent had moved and taken me with her. Right. And then didn't get me... I mean, not just... Not much. Didn't get me anything for eight months. We went out for lunch and I said, look, you know, what's going on? And then... The following week, she rang me and said, I suggest that you start looking for another agent. And I thought, well, okay, wow, okay. Which was really hard, really, really hard. I'd known this person for a long time. And because it wasn't you, it wasn't you that was making that decision? No. It was somebody else making that decision and for I'd, you? And I'd gone with her for yeah. the agency we were originally with. You Did know? you feel let down? I felt really hurt. Right. I mean, this is the other thing. I think I once I once said to Neil Maskell, um, when I have when I've had a pint too many, I've got a skin too few. But I think I do. I did have a skin too few at that point in my life, so I wasn't able to ride those punches. Really. Yeah. You know, I really took them personally. But what was weird was she <clears throat> then got me three big meetings straight away. I think I got the biggest two jobs of those three meetings. And, of course, again, as all actors know, you get two jobs and you can't do them both because they clash. (laughs) So I had to choose. And I didn't know much about it, and it was a film. And then it turned out, you know, they paid me more money than I'd ever been paid. It was a lead part in a film with DeGray Scott and Emilia Fox and Jimmy Mystery and Sean Parks and Bruce McKinnon and... Yada 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 yada, and some really good, very good older actors, and I mean really good actors. I mean there was an endless array of just trying to think of else. There was loads of people in it, um, and it was a big deal. I thought, and it came out, and it was rubbish, <laughs> and that was it for me because I thought this is you know if this doesn't work out, I think I was pretty good in it. Um. It, it, and I just thought, I've, I've not got the energy. I've not... I could... Because if I... So 2005, I would have been, what, coming up to 30-ish, you know. So how long, from 24-7 to this point we're, we're talking about now, how, what's the what's the, the span? What, from from 24-7 to that point in my acting career? Yeah. yeah round, coming up for 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. Yeah. So that's a good... I gave it a good, good shot. Good crack. And then I as you always do, it's hard to give up acting. You know, so I kept, I did bits and pieces. I think I did a Spooks and I did my 
tenth and eleventh episodes of the Bill, <laughs> <laughs> um, which you know, has- yeah, it was, was basically for people who don't know, it was the, uh, the television equivalent of old school rap theatre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God bless the Bill. Yeah. God bless the Bill. How many people? Um, and it just. I just, you know, so I'd already, I decided to go and do a master's degree, you know, and I was doing that and I was working with kids again. Right, so how funny, so you went back to Mm. working with kids again Mm. after all those years. And I did that for nearly seven years. Right. While I was studying. (coughs) And what what were you studying? Um, Psychoanalysis. Right. So obviously the, the psychoanalysis is something that's always been there for you. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, you know, it helped me a lot, um, to, to learn about myself, and I I think one of the most important things about what happened to me with the acting was I wasn't happy, and I got less and less happy towards the end, Yeah, and I had to shift something. And I did. And part of that was by going to see somebody to talk about it. Um, And that kind of enabled me to think, actually, you know... But also it's that age, isn't it? 30-odd. It's one of the first... It's the first kind of adult milestone, isn't it? I mean, I thought 21... I thought, you know, we all thought we were growing up when we were 21. (laughs) But then going into your 30s you realise that your 20s are really difficult. There's a lot of pressure in your 20s. And also um, you're still working out. And you're still you working, are. exactly, you're still working it out. And I just thought, you know, if I don't stop now, I felt like I was going to reach some sort of seesaw tipping point where if I don't get out now, it's going to be too late yeah. and the plane's going to be too low and my parachute is not going to make any difference at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so I made the leap. And did you feel when you made that leap... Was there an an instant that, you know, you'd shed that skin and you went, right, I'm not going to do this acting anymore? Did you feel slightly freer not having made that decision yourself? Not initially, because for a long time I felt like I'd failed and I worried that other people would think that I'd failed. Right. And that I'd given up. Um, Michael Smiley said to me, took me out for lunch and said, he said, I know... Because, you know, when you're not in the game, you just don't see your actor mates as much. No. You know, I'm off doing my own thing, you know. Actors think that everyone lives like actors. <laughs> it's like, actually, when you're doing a nine to five and your mate rings you up with ten minutes notice and says, oh, you know, I'm in the toucan, yeah. fancy a pint. And you're like, well, no, actually, I'm it at work. It doesn't really work like that, yeah. <laughs> I'm at work. It's 11 Also, o'clock. when you're, you're studying and you're back working with, with kids as you were. Yeah. And then having your own, you know. But But Smiley said to me, you know, some people may think you've given up. I think, really, they know that it's the bravest thing you possibly could have done. Because in some ways, it's it would have been easy for me to keep acting and playing the little violin for myself, saying, you know, my agent doesn't love me, I'm not getting the jobs, blah, blah, blah. But because I hadn't wanted to do it all my life, yeah, it, that gave me that little bit of space to say, right, I'm out, I'm not doing it. You know, um, I miss it. I do miss it sometimes. You do miss it. I miss the work. Yeah. yeah. 
I miss the work. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Except when it's making you really unhappy. Exactly. You know, and it's good. I mean, you know, I remember joking with somebody, you know, there's two types of actors, ex-alcoholics and <laughs> alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, and the, you know, the joke wasn't really about alcoholism. The joke yeah. was about how difficult it is to cope with the rejection, the insecurity, the, you know, the, the absolute adulation followed by... Ten months of nobody knowing who you are. Yeah. Of, you know, I heard Eddie Nestor on the radio the other day. Who Eddie Nestor's a, a, a old old school, been around many many years, and people forget a very very good actor, but has his own radio show now on BBC London. And he said, you know, the other day he was talking about signing on, and being asked for his autograph in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> and you just think, yeah, that sort of sums it up. It's funny because these podcasts, um, what I never really do, they're never a career retrospective or we never talk about jobs. But I think in your case, what sets it apart from any others is we had to delve into the jobs because that's where the, that's where your, you know, in inverted commas, training sort of started and put you through. Yeah. Um, and I think you're on a, a obviously a much happier path. No. I have no doubt at all that um, we wouldn't be sitting, literally, <laughs> where we are now, um, with my lovely other half. And, and two beautiful kids. And my oldest daughter having just come in. Yeah. And, you know, on a beautiful sunny day in North London. And, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot happier. I'm a lot happier. And isn't that what it's all about at the end of the day? I don't think there can be any doubt that that is exactly what it's all about. And, I mean, you know, if you're lucky enough to have children and a supportive partner, you know, you, everything just changes the minute, you have a, the minute you have a child. Maybe not the minute, because it's pretty terrifying, but... But it certainly grows. I, I know what you mean, and I'm sure people listening will know exactly what you mean. It just changes, doesn't it? Because yeah. you're just not important. <laughs> it's not about you anymore. No, it's not about you anymore. And, you know, if anybody yeah. needed telling that, one may suggest <laughs> <laughs> that actors might be top of that list. <laughs> Danny, thank you so much for inviting us into your home. Um, We've been friends for so many years, but it's always lovely to chat to you. I think about 20 years, pushing it, really. That is nuts. It is. Mate, thanks so much. Oh, God bless. Um, so there it is. The one thing I'm really learning about doing these podcasts is... Of course, everyone is different. Every story is different. Uh, but that was the first time that we ended and I was a bit choked to be honest um, I did feel quite emotional I think it was the revelation of, of happiness and family is so important, I really hope you enjoyed it um, I hope you got something out of that it's uh, it, it was uh, yeah <laughs> it was emotional I loved it, I thought it was great, it was a really great chat and I really want to thank Danny 
for sitting down and being so honest and open with us um, in North London. It was uh, fab. And I also want to thank you for tuning in, obviously, and subscribing. Yeah, please um, rate us. Give us the old five stars if you fancy. If you don't, just don't give anything at all, really. You can always follow us on at Two Shot Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We're the same for that. The Two Shot Podcast on Facebook. You can email us on twoshotpod at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Let us know what you're thinking. You can also follow me on at cparks1976 on Twitter. And also put in all the W's, then a dot put in splicingblock.com. They've been very supportive of us. What I will say, though, for any potential sponsors out there, splicingblock.com is not a sponsor. They don't give us any money whatsoever. Just to say, if you are a potential sponsor, we will welcome you, is what, is what I'm saying. Um, do let us know what you think of the podcast so far. Um, we're really loving doing it. I hope you're enjoying it. This has been the Two Shot Podcast. I've been Craig Parkinson. Take care, and I'll see you next week. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Them Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>